Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Sorry guys, I'll listen to the rest of this endless voicemail message later. Long messages are the worst. Yeah, it was very long. That was an especially long one. I'm glad you cut it off. We're going to sell an app where every 30 seconds that you leave a message, you get an electric shock through your phone. I support that. So in fact, father, I would pay to install that on other people's phones. I would pay to install it on my dad's phone. <clears throat> because my father, he will call. And you know how like the Indian voicemail has like a little timestamp of how long it is? <laughs> like two minutes, six seconds. And it will be my dad. He's in the car, so he decided to call me. And he's on his way down to, you know, wherever in town to do an errand. And he's just reciting what he's doing along the way. It's like, Because, oh, of course, the... you want to know. Yeah, he's narrating his errands. That is the voicemail. I understand <laughs> the impulse to want to narrate your own life. I do it in my head sometimes. Yeah. That, isn't Susan that what Twitter is all about, water. actually? Don't leave it my voicemail. <laughs> I just don't listen to voicemails. Yeah, you know, you don't read your email. You don't listen to voicemails. It's amazing that anyone ever reaches you at all. And I'm and I'm so much happier. And I, I would say you're you. one log cabin away from being the Unabomber, but you have a log cabin. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the you're nobody till somebody hacks you edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast, and we're back after two weeks. We missed you, Shane. I missed you guys, too. Did you get hacked in Maine? Nobody hacked me in Maine. You got a nice tan, though. I do. Do you think I look tan? You look very relaxed. That's nice. The first person ever to go to Maine for a tan. (laughs) Well, it's because we live on this very rugged island that we're on where everyone's, like, all, like, very leathered and very, like, you know wind chapped and they're all out they working. chop their own wood and they, yeah. catch their own no it's like a land's end catalog it kind of is it's this crazy island that there's like it's one no it's Maine it's an L.L. Bean catalog yeah it's L.L. Okay, Bean yeah, you know you can take true. in like a piece of clothing to L.L. Bean a lifetime guarantee you can like take it in like yeah you can take it return it anytime for yeah. any reason don't yeah. say rational security never taught you anything that's right that's right <laughs> we're good for something we were hacked by bugs awareness. in our house though uh, all kinds of bugs. It's very yeah. buggy. They got in through all Putin, the screens. Putin sent them. Putin did send but them. But we will have revenge in the object lesson section. We sure will. We sure. We're going to show you. We're going to show you what we saved up for you, Vlad. Uh, a lot has happened since we've been away, huh? Yeah. I know. A few things have happened. Uh, we're going to try and get to some of them this week on the podcast. Uh, the New York Times and maybe the NSA get hacked. Is the U.S. turning the tide on the war in uh, turning the tide of the war against ISIS? And October surprises. What could happen between now and the election? And will it even matter? Doom. Doom. <laughs> Rational security speculates wildly. I hey. predict doom and destruction. Everybody else does it. Why can't we? Sure. And Death. for the record, a lot of our predictions have actually been pretty good. I'm just going to say. Maybe we'll get to that later in the podcast. Pestilence. Pestilence. <laughs> the four horsemen of the apocalypse exactly. over there. We had a locust invasion when I was in Maine. So, like, we're on to the next one. Um, let's start with the news uh, this week that uh, the New York Times uh, was revealed by CNN actually this week. Uh, apparently, was targeted by possibly the same Russian hackers who hit the DNC. Uh, I think the New York Times is saying that there's no evidence that there was actually an intrusion, but you know, 
Can I just say that these hackers are sort of like turning into Kaiser Soze? Whatever whatever goes wrong in cybersecurity in the world... It must be the Russian hackers. We're now, we're now attributing to this group yeah, of It's Russian getting a little hackers. crazy, right? Well, I also sort of feel like there's going to be, if there isn't yet, there's going to be a competitive dynamic with media organizations. Like, you remember a few years ago, there was that Google warning that popped up on oh, different yeah. people's Gmail saying you may have been compromised by a foreign government. And if you didn't you got get one, I got one. I didn't get one. I, but, you know, if you didn't get one in Washington, you just weren't cool. <laughs> and I kind of feel like, you know, if the Russians haven't hacked you this summer, <clears throat> you obviously don't count. You're not You're part nobody. of the power structure. So here's the thing. If you knew that you had been hacked or targeted, would it be in your interest to say it? Or would it actually be a very bad idea? Because that might make you seem less than trustworthy. Maybe we should announce that rational security has been hacked by the Russians. (laughs) I mean, our Twitter feed's not active enough to have been hacked by the Russians. We don't even have an email account. (laughs) (laughs) Dear Russia, I forgot the password to our Twitter That's operational security. Oh, of course. Because actually, when you think about it, rational security really doesn't exist. I mean, it's just like it exists. It exists in our hearts. There's a podcast server which... uh, is not in the name of an organization, Rational Security. So you're saying we're a distributed network? We are a distributed yeah. network. Like I mean, terrorists. it's actually impossible to hack Rational we're Security. We're so bad. But Lawfare's been hacked. Lawfare has been... Well, a targeted, uh, DDoS. It has had a, DD, had a series of DDoS attacks. Of you. Yeah. Uh, well, but the more interesting hack, I think, that we might want to talk about is actually one that's not necessarily being attributed to the Russians, uh, even though you might think it was the Russians based on their... Uh, Boris and Natasha style uh, post that was put up <laughs> claiming responsibility, a group called uh, Shadow Brokers, uh, which claims that they may have hacked the National Security Agency, whatever that means. But See what happens when you go on vacation, Shane. NSA gets hacked. See, if I'm around, they're protected. Um, this is I'm a very sure tra- that is the correlation. It truly is. I am Shadow Brokers. I am Kaiser Soze. Um, you think you'd hack me in Maine. It's the other way around. Um, But this is a fascinating issue because, so the material that has been published by this group or individual calling itself Shadow Brokers does contain exploit code. I mean, it contains real sensitive stuff uh, that a number of experts are looking at and saying this seems to be the product, the work product of the NSA. They're basing that in part off of documents that were provided to The Intercept by Edward Snowden. It's not entirely clear to me if they were in the group that was provided a couple of years ago or if he's leaking new documents. I'm a little unclear on that. It, it seemed to me like they they sort of cross-referenced documents they had. That they already to, had to it. Maybe they had it. see if there was on. indication of the same type. Right. So they find yeah. some stuff in there that says, hey, look, <clears throat> the code and the, the, the information that's showing up in this leak matches up with known programs and known operations that are described in the Snowden cache. Um, I guess one question we could start with is, uh, you know, well, there's a lot of questions we have about this, but one that I'm sort of curious about is, okay, so this information is out there. Putting aside for a second, we'll get to this in a moment, of how somebody could have gotten to this, which is, I think is the more interesting question. Is this stuff even that revealing? I mean, it is apparently a couple of years old. October 2013 seems to be the the, the latest uh, iteration of the information that's out there. Um, the NSA, it will come as no surprise to people, probably changes up its operations and tactics relatively frequently, and particularly after the Snowden leaks, which were before uh, this information was dated. So one question is whether or not this stuff is even all that useful. Uh, and if it's not, then why go to the, pro- the bother of putting it out there? 
Right. So I think it's not clear. Uh, again, most experts sort of agree that this likely is authentic material from the NSA. Um, uh, I haven't examined the exploit code independently, um, but sort of operating on that assumption, I think the the usefulness is um, sort of, it's really a question of how big of a hit is it to uh, the NSA's capabilities? How much are they losing? Um, it's certainly reasonable to believe that they might still be using something that was in use two years ago, right? So um, it seems like the material was probably um, stolen or hacked or however it was acquired around October 2013, um, although those dates could have been altered. Um, so even that is not sort of conclusive evidence. Um, you know, I think that there's been eight exploits that are revealed um, in Cisco systems and otherwise. Um, you know, you could guess how valuable those targets might be. Um, but They're pretty ubiquitous technology, so it could be very valuable. Right, although the, the idea that there are only eight exploits, right, or, or that they're of such yeah. criticality, I think the, the bigger hit is, is not necessarily the actual loss of those exploits, which... Um, uh, can be solved with money and time and, right, sort of the, the worst thing you lose is a lot of work and potentially insight into a target. Um, it's its impact on the larger conversation. Um, so there's already been a lot of criticism about the, uh, the NSA um, retaining vulnerabilities that exist in, for example, U.S. infrastructure um, in order to capitalize, it, uh, capitalize sure. on it for operational purposes. So there's been a lot of uh, controversy and debate around the vulnerabilities equities process, the NSA merge. Um, this is the kind of thing that mixes that whole debate up again. Um, it's, in, nice, it's a nice specific example, too, isn't it? Well, I like, think it's, here are eight exploits that the NSA was keeping from manufacturers. Well, and I, to me, this raises another theory that's out there about why I go to the bother of revealing this stuff, which is getting back to a conversation we had a few weeks ago about um, assigning responsibility and sort of creating public accountability for hacks is that, you know, one theory is that this is a sort of a deterrent strike saying to the United States, oh, well, if you're going to um, ascribe responsibility for hacks to the Russians using, you know, these various techniques, just know that we have ways of fingerprinting your work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so this can go two ways and it's sort of a deterrent against efforts to ascribe public accountability. So maybe this is something they were leaving around, hanging around for a rainy day for... I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, the sequence of events here is important, and it's DNC hack, DNC hack gets attributed, or quasi-attributed, uh, big speculation in U.S. media and government circles that DNC hack is a specific effort to intervene in U.S. elections. Lots of hand-wringing about that. And demand for sanctions and yeah. demand, for all, demand for all kinds of retaliatory yeah, action. exactly. And then uh, a sharp reminder that somebody has their hands in NSA's pocket. Right, but I think it's it's important to um, be clear about the difference um, in attribution here, right? So um, there is technical indicators. There's a lot of sort of specific concrete evidence for um, uh, attributing the DNC hack to particular Russian actors. In this case, um, sure, we might say, well, you know, this was leaked um, and as a reminder of attribute, you know, that the Russians also can attribute against the NSA or the NSA also engages in, in hacking activities around the world. Um, the problem is 
is that there's not, other than that kind of um, broader speculation of, well, who else could it be but the Russians? There actually isn't any evidence um, that the Russians are necessarily behind the leak. And remember, right. the source of the information and the source of the leak could also be two different people. Considering the kind of chaos actors that we've seen as of late, right, WikiLeaks and, um, you know, sort of hacktivists and all the different organizations that are popping up that um, their sort of animating principle appears to be like tr radical transparency at its most coherent and pure mischief at its yeah. sort of... Denial and deception, really. I mean, it's, it's right. So, like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some group unrelated to the Russians somehow had this information and decided that this would be a really fun uh, time to release this information. So, do you want to say something? No, go ahead. So, this gets to the interesting question, which I've been grappling with, and I, <clears throat> I'm going to lay a theory on you guys, and I want to get your response. And we'll shoot it down. So <laughs> the question has been, so, so who did it, right? And we've actually seen very rapid attribution in some of these past cases, the DNC hack, the DCCC hack, the New York Times hack, which was sort of immediately attributed to, yes, it's Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear again, which sort of raises a whole host of questions. Well, how do we know that? Like how fancy is your bear? How fancy is, <laughs> is your bear? We're very cozy with our bears lately. But <clears throat> there's been sort of the, 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 the conventional wisdom in the past week or so about how it was that shadow brokers or whomever obtained this information got it is that it was taken off of a server someplace outside the NSA's physical confines, right? So their network confines, often called a staging server, where the NSA goes and says, we're going to sit here on this server and then we're going to go zap our bad guys from this server so it doesn't look like it's coming from Fort Meade. Okay, fairly straightforward. And that some, you know, you know, dumbass left this file sitting on a server someplace and it was come along and snatched for a while that made some sense to me and now that makes totally no sense to me for the following reason the information if we're to believe what we're seeing was is authentic NSA information was not encrypted it looks to be a combination it looks like a cookbook it basically looks like here's some exploit code here's how you build the exploit code it looks a lot like a training manual. It looks a lot like information that you would have inside the NSA for the use of instructing operators and analysts on how to conduct these operations. It also makes no sense to me that an agency this sophisticated would leave unencrypted, unobfuscated training manual information on a server from which it was conducting actual operations. I mean, that sort of seems to me to be like, we have war plans at the Pentagon. We don't just, like, take the war plan out to the battlefield and go, wait, let me flip to appendices, you know, 12 here, and then leave it laying around. This seems to me to suggest there's the possibility that this is actually somebody who had access to it inside the NSA and released it that Ooh, way. Why is see? everyone looking at me? <laughs> Look, I did not take that information. Susan leaves NSA. Few months later, mm -hmm. this material shows up. Mm -hmm. Coincidence? Coincidence? It's a logical inference. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you guys think of that? So that like, is an it, interesting theory that has been offered um, by many people that are um, have lots of interesting backgrounds and insight. Um, <laughs> not to be vague at all. Not to but be it, totally vague. But it doesn't seem like the going theory. But right? I will. It seems like the counter theory. Sure. I mean, right, they're, they're sort of right. They're, they're, I mean, there are, there are the two basic explanations, right? It either got stolen through, you know, it was either hacked or it was an insider threat, right? That, that's 
broadly speaking, that is sort of the sure. categories of, of But my question is, like, maintained. the logic of why it looks more like an insider threat. So I think two general observations. Um, one is that I would, um, just in general in intelligence, I would never discount the possibility of a mistake or stupidity. <laughs> um, I think so often um, from outside kind of the classified space, it seems like these masterminds at work and they control every piece and this and that mistakes and luck and happenstance, I, I think, are far more significant. And so, and if um, anyone has any doubt of that, just think about the reply all button. Exactly. It sure. happens to everyone. But but here's the next question about that. If you are, okay, so let's just say this was material that somebody very foolishly left lying around on a proxy, or a proxy server or a staging server, whatever you want to call it. To be the person who then absconded with that information, you'd have to know which server out of the millions and millions and millions of servers of physical infrastructure out there to look at. So did they just get lucky? Did they? I mean, or there are a lot of people out there snooping around for all kinds of stuff. And all right. But somebody you know got lucky now? and came across Maybe. it and sold it to the highest bidder. Look, I think that the bigger question is um, whether or not we are going to get any kind of um, additional public information or sort of um, insight into this. And I would say this is an area, whatever the actual explanation is, the answer is no. Because just like we saw um, in the DNC hacks and even with Sony and sort of the other... Um, kind of headline attribution cases, we've seen that there really is a need um, to give a lot of technical information, right? Nobody just trusts the U.S. government, that it was the Russians, that it was the North Koreans. Um, they really are sort of obligated to prove their case, show their work. Um, wherever this happened, right, if it's sort of a, if it's internal to NSA networks, if it's a staging server, um, sort of the, the plausible universe of technical information there's no way that's going to be taken to the public. And so I think that, one, we almost certainly aren't going to see U.S. attribution. And two, if we were going to see attribution in the kind of, you know, vague leaks, I don't know that it would be enough to genuinely be convincing. I think that's right. I think this is just going to be one of those long-term mysteries that waits until somebody writes a memoir 20 years from now. Well, and, and I, I think twenty that, years. They need to know now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think in the electronic age, memoirs can come a little quicker. But I well, also think that the, what you can you're hit both backspace, right? What you're both saying to me lends strength to the notion that fundamentally this is about signaling. Yeah, it's about the conversation, the sort of sub rosa conversation about uh, where this cyber war. Um, is going. Yeah. And I do think sort of that um, it is worth making the general point about kind of the insider threat because, of course, um, you know, to the extent there's, you know, this is a second Snowden, how could this happen? Um, you know, to the extent there's any sort of credibility behind that theory or, or it gains momentum, um, I do think it's uh, it's sort of important to understand that whenever it comes to insider threats in particular, there's only so much you can do. Um, a huge amount of this work in community is based on trust. When mm -hmm. people have to have access to sensitive information in order to do their jobs, you have to trust some group of people. You can do your best to vet them and check them and put them through metal detectors and psyche valves and whatever else, 
But at the end of the day, there's kind of only so much you can do there. Mm -hmm. um, and so just sort of contextualizing what exactly the challenge is moving forward. All right. Um, let's move forward to our next topic. So the war against ISIS, it's going great. Important victories, turning the tie, Donald Trump is totally wrong. <laughs> uh, or is it a bit more complicated than there's that? There's so much winning. Yeah, there's a lot of, there is a lot of winning, but it may be a little more complicated than that. Um, Tamara, bring us, bring us up to speed on the winning and why it's, maybe we shouldn't be necessarily popping champagne corks too soon. Sure. So I think what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, and particularly over the last few days, is um, both a com set of complications and, in many ways, in the broadest sense, escalation of the war in Syria and of the fight against ISIS. Um, and a couple of developments are significant here. One is that the Syrian regime, with the support of Russia, <clears throat> has significantly scaled up its bombing of civilian areas in Aleppo province um, with the goal of just pounding uh, rebel-held areas whether it's meant to depopulate those areas um, of civilians or whether it's meant to soften up the rebels for some kind of broader Syrian-Russian advance. Um, so that's, that's one part of it. The second part is the decision by the Syrians, again, with the support of the Russians, to conduct airstrikes against American-supported opposition forces uh, further to the north, uh, including uh, Kurdish forces around Hasakah. And this provoked the United States uh, to launch its own airplanes um, to wave off those uh, those Assad allied aircraft. And you know there was an incident a couple of days ago of a close encounter between Russian aircraft and and U.S. aircraft after a long period of time, nearly a year, in which there's been very very careful deconfliction, as the phrase goes, in the airspace over Syria. <clears throat> Two things I think come out of this. One is wow, the U.S. seems to be declaring a de facto no-fly zone above uh, the areas where its allied forces and its special operators, let's not forget, are based on Syrian territory. And if it can do that, why couldn't it do the same thing over areas where civilians are being subjected to daily bombardment? Um, but the second thing is that it's the first time that the U.S. seems to be using the threat of military force in any way to kind of put a red line sorry for that maladroit phrase, oh, to draw a fence in any way around Syrian and Russian behavior <clears throat> in the civil war. And again, it begs the question, why now, why here, and if you can do it here, why not do it elsewhere? And so I think it opens up necessarily a set of questions about American strategy and about the inevitable connections between the American campaign against ISIS and uh, the outcome of the civil conflict in Syria. Now, simultaneously, over the last couple of days, we've seen the Turks prepare for and then last night embark on an operation that I think the United States would have wanted to see them undertake a year and a half ago, which is a cross-border incursion into northern Syria to push ISIS back from the Syrian uh, from the Syrian-Turkish border. And uh, not coincidentally, right now, uh, there's a secondary aim, which for the Turks may be the primary aim, which is to insert Turkish force and Turkish allied Sunni rebels between two pockets of Kurdish-controlled areas on the Syrian side of the Syrian-Turkish border and prevent the Kurds, the Syrian Kurdish forces, from creating any kind of uni unified belt of territorial control along the Turkish border. 
And I think it's fascinating that uh, the Turks have finally decided to do this now. Uh, they were, as we all know, very slow to, to try and tighten their own border with Syria to try and constrain ISIS from crossing back and forth against this border, but they've now crossed a Rubicon. And I think that there are two, two drivers here. One is, um, as I said, the threat posed by this burgeoning Kurdish uh, zone of control. But the other is what's happened inside Turkey, which is that since the attempted coup against Erdogan, he now finds himself with a much broader mm. political coalition supporting him than he ever could have imagined. His approval ratings up to 68%. The nationalist Kemalists who always hated him are now backing him. And so he can undertake this risky military operation with a much more secure footing at home. Does that suggest that he always wanted to do this but just felt constrained? Um, well, you know, that would be a really generous interpretation. Uh, the other interpretation is that he didn't really want to do it, but the Kurds have forced his hand. Yeah. So I have a question sort of about... Um, the, it feels like there's been a shift in attention in the United States or, or a shift in feeling um, that sort of it's ebbed and flowed a little bit um, throughout the five years of, of conflict, right? So sort of um, that initial intensity around kind of the red line and, you know, I think the presumption on behalf of a lot of people that we were going to be conducting military operations and then, uh, you know, a real sort of political you know, backlash against that, so it didn't happen. Um, and there's been a few moments where um, particular images have sort of captured the public imagination. Um, you know, I think everyone saw this, you know, really heartbreaking image of uh, this little five-year-old boy in Aleppo. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting this week um, is this is the first time that I've really seen um, a, 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 such a strategic and unified response among kind of the... Um, policy community. Uh, previously, it seemed like whenever sort of attention shifted to Syria, um, it was a lot of, this is really complicated, here are all the problems, here are all the sort of, um, you know, pros and cons, and, and nobody understands it, and it's all chaos. And so um, it wasn't clear where sort of the lay public or public opinion was supposed to sort of align behind. This is the first time that actually across a number of different um, uh, sort of I did political spectrums and, and in different publications, I really saw a lot of um, specific uh, suggestions being offered, right? So if you care about that picture, here is what you should be at, you should be telling your president to do. Establishing a safe zone, establishing no-fly zones, this, that. Is that, um, do you think that it's just the, um, the policy community has sort of um, solidified around a set of Options? Do you think that they understand there's a new recognition? I mean, is this sort of is this an effort to potentially shift the administration's calculus? Well, this is really it's an interesting moment actually because I think across the the policy establishment or what President Obama might call the bubble or the or blob, the blob, the blob. Um, there's been a fairly uh, there there's been a fair bit of consensus that the administration's approach to the war on ISIS could not succeed in the absence of a different approach toward the Assad regime in Syria, that the attempt to have a wall between these two policies was an inevitable failure. And more recently, I think a sense that, boy, you know, this administration is so dug in on this, they're never going to shift before the end of their term. We're going to have to wait for the next crowd and sort of the launching of a debate about what should the next administration do on Syria? 
And then also, I think the administration had the cover of this diplomatic process with John Kerry flying off to Vienna or to Moscow every other day to to uh, work with the Russians somehow and achieve a diplomatic end to the war. And two things I think have happened that have changed the conversation. I don't think it's the policy establishment that's changed. I think public public sentiments are changing, and I think the administration may be, maybe, maybe starting to change. The diplomatic effort is a shambles. It's a disaster. It's achieved no progress toward ending the war. Assad is as firmly entrenched as ever. The civilian toll is horrific, as that picture symbolized, and there's nothing left for Kerry to do. Uh, I think that's undeniable at this point, and so everyone has to reckon with it. The cover is ripped off. Um, and the second thing is that the administration's war against ISIS has proceeded, as you noted, Shane, to such an extent that the Syrians and Russians now have conflicting interests with us on the ground. Uh, and the administration cannot avoid that conflict if it wants to succeed in its anti-ISIS campaign. And so somehow it has to confront Syrian and Russian behavior without uh, going too far down that slippery slope that that they're so, so worried about in the White House, getting sucked into the Syrian civil war. And so perhaps there's a moment of opportunity here for a policy reevaluation, but I have to say, having watched the administration deal with this for five years, I'm pretty cynical that we're going to see a significant shift. Yeah, I don't think there's any reason to think that there's a window of opportunity here. I mean, there's been a window of opportunity anytime the administration wanted to take some risk to get involved, and it's never wanted to take some risk to get involved. Whether that could have been done successfully or not is a, is an unknowable question, but there's no, uh, there's no reason to think there's a window of opportunity now in the absence of precisely the set of things that they're not willing to do. And I think the, the defense of the administration on this is that they chose to take no risk and, um, and let things play out as awfully as they were going to. And they've gotten exactly that. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe that was the right call from a, purely realpolitik, uh, amoral approach. But it's very hard to argue, ah, now we've kind of reached this point where, you know, there's going to be a big payoff for, uh, you know, for this sort of policy of kind of hands off, you know, let Russia and Assad do their thing uh, policy. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a choice to have allowed a bloodbath. We've had the bloodbath. And uh, we continue to have it, and and lessen until we step in to stop it. Uh, that's exactly what we're going to have, and I think you sort of make a, a a moral and strategic choice about whether you're willing to tolerate that or not. Uh, Barack Obama clearly is. I think we've learned a lot about him in the course of this. But the idea that you know this sort of hands-off approach has produced a window of opportunity for something beautiful uh, strikes me as... as uh, <laughs> that, you know. that, that wasn't what I meant to imply. I guess... No, no, okay, I don't mean it's what you meant be... to imply, but I do think it's it's a kind of idea that's sort of in the air now that, you know, now that people have seen this picture... Of this <clears> we were poor, right all along. This, this <laughs> poor, See? People have seen the picture of the poor boy, and all of a sudden the <clears> world is spurred to action. There was even a New York Times 
headline of, uh, I think it was a New York Times headline of, you know, can this picture spur action where no one else, where no, where nothing else can? And the answer is no. You okay, guys are so, so cynical. So let's be as cynical as Ben for just a minute and think about it from the perspective of the Obama administration's political imperatives between now and January 20th, okay? They... They need the war on ISIS to be on a positive trajectory with significant progress before they leave office. They've made some hints that they have some specific goals in that regard, uh, territorial goals in Iraq at least. And they need the Syrian war not to blow up in their face in a way that, that reveals the degree of their, their realist cynicism. Um, and so, you know, what what might happen here? Um, the Iraqi the Iraqi part of this anti ISIS offensive has significant constraints because the Iraqi government and the Iraqi military simply are not capable of winning these battles of retaking Mosul, uh, and so that leaves the option of if you want to proceed, doing so with Shia militias that compound the political and sectarian divisions inside Iraq and maybe, you know, maybe defeat ISIS, but may leave something worse behind. And in the Syrian case, uh, we've reached a point where Assad, having been allowed free reign to bombard the opposition, um, is now extending that campaign against the U.S.-allied anti-ISIS opposition. And so I think on both fronts, the U.S. is facing some hard limits to its strategy for success. And somehow, I think the Obama administration is going to have to figure out how to, how it gets from now to January yeah. looking like success. I mean, I just want to say, I, I don't think what I said was cynical at all. I, I think that, um, you know, it is, I, 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 I think you can make a perfectly good case for having uh, gotten involved earlier in a substantial way. And I think the administration, to its credit, in my judgment, uh, makes a, a pretty unapologetic case for staying out of things on, our, on, the, on the grounds that uh, they didn't want to get embroiled in a quagmire and they didn't want to risk a whole lot of U.S. lives. I think what you can't do is uh, combine the two. And the... Um, you know, if you're going to take the position that the administration takes, you have to accept the moral consequences for it, which is that you've stood by and let uh, some number of hundreds of thousands of people uh, die or be displaced. And I don't think that's cynical to point that out. I just think, you know, what, what, what drives me kind of bananas is the way John Kerry talks about this in moral terms, having done exactly nothing to stop it other than to, to talk to the Russians in a, in a very polite fashion. Right. But I, I do think that there is a way to view the administration's imperative between now and January as the preservation of Obama's legacy. And so potentially, I, I think the the non-cynical or maybe, uh, you know, Pollyanna optimistic uh, hope here might be that um, there is some combination of um, focused political attention um, along with uh, an understanding by the administration that this is going to be a stain on Obama's legacy. Um, 
that it really is going to be part of the story of his presidency um, that is not flattering to the administration and, and that history will likely not be kind to that judgment. Um, and that there are new emerging facts, um, like the use of incendiary weapons, uh, confrontation with U.S. troops, that might give the sort of I don't want to say like like plausible reason, right, or pretense, but but it might sort of say, okay, this is something new that actually might merit or uh, allow for a reevaluation. Um, and then they do a sort of on the way out the door policy shift, the way George H. W. Bush did in Somalia, and handed it off to Clinton. I mean, if they're if they know that Clinton is very much is oriented towards that kind of policy, I don't think it's absurd. Yeah. Interesting hypothesis. <clears throat> well, there's a lot of time between now and January, including the month of October. <laughs> um, nice segue, like Shane. Yeah. Um, so October surprises. There could be so many. There could be so many surprises. Um, it'd be fun to sort of get a sense of what could happen between now and the election and will it matter. We've talked a little bit, of, we've talked a lot about what could happen in Syria. I want to offer up, actually, um, two thoughts. One where I do not think there will be a surprise and one where I think there could be. So there will not be a surprise from the 14,900 additional emails that the FBI found that Hillary Clinton did not turn over to the State Department. 14,900. Remember she turned over 30,000? 14,900. You know how you know there will not be a surprise? Because there was nothing in the original 30,000. <laughs> well, and, and also because if the FBI had found a big surprise they would have indicted her. <laughs> it would have uh, changed the outcome of yeah. the investigation somehow. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so it was sort of a, I only point that out just to say that, yes, this week we found out that there were 15,000 additional emails lying around, and Jim Comey likes to talk about the Slack space of various servers. I'm not exactly sure what the Slack space is. No, but is. it sounds so cool. It I sounds really cool. I wish I had more cool. Slack space in my closet because then maybe I would open and read all of the email yeah. I get from Bloomingdale's every day. Oh, well. Um, I'm going to protect so where we might see surprise. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Someone somewhere has hacked Donald Trump's tax returns, and they have them, and they're going to release them in October. Is this just wild speculation? Or the wildest. No, it's, the, it's, it's, it's like, I just think if you look at the state of the world right now, and you look at, because apparently, like, everything is out there. I mean, think about it. Somewhere, his accountant has copies of his tax returns. I presume they're not only on paper. Um, it just seems so obvious to me that somebody somewhere would have figured out who his accountant is and hacked them. Or like found the data center in Ogden, Utah, where the IRS keeps everyone's tax returns and taking it. I don't see that being an October surprise because all of the actors who are strategic minded enough to wait for October don't seem like the hacking types to me. Right? I mean, I we're underestimating them. They, right. they, look, they know it's they, like Debbie Wasserman Schultz put in a hoodie in front of a laptop. Like what, are, <laughs> what are your guys' predictions for, for October surprises? Okay, well, here's my speculation on what won't be an October surprise. And I could well be wrong, but I hope that I'm not wrong. I don't think that there will be a new Russian offensive in Ukraine between now and the election. Because I think that to the extent that Putin does have an interest in affecting the outcome of the American election that would push things in the wrong direction for him. Um, but I do think um, that there could be some other Middle Eastern crisis 
us outside of Syria, outside of Iraq, that uh, will force a conversation that we haven't really had in this presidential debate yet, a serious conversation about American foreign policy. And that could be a new round of Israeli-Palestinian violence, mm. for example, uh, or uh, a crisis in Algeria with the death of Bouteflika, who's been on his deathbed for God knows how long. Um, and that would affect oil markets and that would affect the economy. So those are two potential scenarios for Middle Eastern October surprise. So my prediction, I have a prediction of sort of that's the same of, of what will be an October surprise and what won't it be. Um, and that's that I, uh, I think that there will be an attempt to uh, release information or leak information about the Clinton Foundation, um, about, you know, some sort of alleged smoking gun donors for access, et cetera. Um, and I think it will end up being more sort of... Noise. Kind of like the Secretary of State meeting with the Deputy Head of State of a major Arab partner government, and that's a scandal. Right. So I think that there will be yet another sort of um, uh, there will be some sort of a, a you know genuine appearance of impropriety, but largely a manufactured scandal. And I would bet that um, uh, either conservative super PACs or, um, you know, Trump himself will sort of go all in in an October offensive, trying to really hammer kind of the, the Clinton foundation as a corrupt vehicle. Um, and, and, and yet I, I can't imagine that an actual sort of smoking gun emerges. Um, and then uh, for the other side, um, my guess uh, for an October surprise is that some piece of information linking Donald Trump's businesses to actually illegal activities comes out. Mm. Um, so the guy has a lot of mob ties. Um, I think there's potentially some kind of smoking gun there. Um, and I think there is potentially some kind of smoking gun with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, right? Something that um, uh, the kinds of federal statutes that are not widely known to the average American, um, but uh, can ins have ensnared um, far more... Uh, savory businesses um, whenever they attempt to uh, use money to exert influence uh, abroad on uh, winning building contracts or otherwise, right? It, that is a crime in the United States. Um, so my guess is that there is something um, that they will use in October to sort of put the nail in Trump's coffin by saying he's a crook. Ben? Well, let me start with what will not be an October surprise. Uh, I think there will not be an October surprise. I think everybody oh, is... Oh, Ben, you're no, no fun. No, no, hang on, hang on. Uh, everybody's exhausted. Uh, everybody just wants this stuff to be over. And um, <laughs> There's and, no market for an October exactly, surprise. Exactly. There's no market for an October <laughs> surprise. No one um, cares. Nobody wants this election to be more exciting or more interesting. And so the, the October surprise that won't be there is an October surprise. That said, what will be an October surprise? Um, here's what's going to happen. Guess what? Donald Trump is going to continue to make outrageous comments offending new and different constituencies that you didn't know that he could offend, that you haven't even thought of. I mean, there are there are some white people out there whom he still hasn't pissed off. Left-handers, um, maybe. It's going to be amazing. They're very sneaky people. You it's, can't trust them. It's going to be amazing 
how many people he offends between now and and it's not just October, by the way. He's got September too, oh, he's, and yeah. he's got two full months to piss off whole categories of no. He started on Mormons this week, um, so you know there's some Which, work when you're down in Utah. Is probably not there's smart. some work to do on Mormons still. He's still ahead a little bit in Utah, and he can <clears> finish that off. But I think he's going to go down one state at a time. Uh, identifying the key constituencies he needs to upset to lose more states. And he's really going to go after that. Joe and I talked a lot about this on vacation because, you know, what else are we going to talk about? Uh, and, you know, in the, my, my Occam's razor theory was if you're operating like Donald Trump, there's only two explanations. Either you're crazy or you're trying to lose. Maybe both. Yeah. And I think I favor number two because what he's trying to do is, is clearly is build a business. Yeah. I, think I, th- the, I think the business is actually going to be a media network and associated properties. This I think the Occam's razor here is that he has absolutely no idea what he's doing and he's in way over Huge his head. Hugely over his head. Right. Oh, yeah. So I'm not, look, I, I he's think the dog I have who caught the more. Car. Right. Yeah. And look, I, I think I have more judgment than Donald Trump. But if all of a sudden I found myself in the at the end of August as the you know, major party nominee, and I hadn't hired anybody, and I was kind of guessing, like, what was going to happen next, I don't think I would be running, like, a beautiful, seamless campaign, right? I think it would be Susan, gaff you'd, after gaff you'd be after run, gaff. you'd be running a great campaign under I'm sure it would be wildly entertaining. It'd be huge. It'd be huge. huge. Right, but, like, turn I... Turn it around. I think we've all had the experience of getting in way over our head in something and then just kind of wishing it would go away. Unfortunately for Donald Trump, uh, he's in it and it's not going anywhere now. Um, and he's going to have to uh, carry this thing to term, to well, uh, he should borrow bring, a phrase. He should bring the rational security team in to run his ground operation. Oh, God. We, Did you see that there's a 12-year-old in yeah. Colorado running his campaign? <laughs> Hey, I worked on political campaigns when I was 12. Did you run the campaign no, office? I knocked on doors. I bet you could have run a campaign. <laughs> Children are our future. Maybe by guys. 14. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, ben, do you want to start? So <laughs> you guys may remember that some time back I had a uh, little collection going of Putin memorabilia. Well, this week... Uh, Quinta Jurassic, Lawfare's uh, new associate editor, brought in what may take the cake for Putin memorabilia. It is Ukrainian Putin toilet paper yes. so that you can wipe your ass with Vladimir Putin's what, what's face. What's he saying? Well, so, I, you know, I don't read Ukrainian. Um, it says make clean. But the... Uh, <laughs> says to ply. This is PTN, <laughs> which I assume is Putin without the vowels. Uh-huh. And this is... Uh, I don't, Putin. I, I don't know what this is. It's, it's, it's some kind of, I assume, uh, 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 obscenity. Uh, and then this just says uh, blah, 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 I, I think. Well... Um, it's, there, there's been a lot of speculation. Flattering. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation that Putin is an asswipe, and here's ah, your proof. Here's your proof. <laughs> We're gonna put a picture of this on the website, yeah, so, so if anyone here so you can should, interpret you should, this, if, if if anybody has good Ukrainian and wants to give us a specific uh, readout on on the Putin toilet paper. Um, uh, otherwise, it's just gonna go up on my desk next to the Putin scented candle. And the other uh, awesome Putin items, uh, by the way, update, still no word from the Kremlin. 
on uh, my challenge uh, to, to the president of Russia to meet me in single combat. He's an asswipe and a wimp. It's true. Yeah, he's a wuss. Uh, tomorrow, your object. All right, well, this is an odd little uh, uh, card, as you can see. But this, mm. this represents um, my entry into um, a, a small and, I felt, very privileged community that I got to be a part of for four days last week. I was resident at the Chautauqua Institution. Oh, look at that. On the beautiful shores of Lake Chautauqua uh, in upstate New York, or I should say in western New York near Buffalo. I was told this is not, in fact, upstate New York. Oh, wow. Um, but for those of you who, who may not know, the Chautauqua Institution was founded in the late 19th century by um, a group of Methodists who wanted to have a Bible school and train Sunday school teachers, and then they, it became revival meetings. And over the more than 100 years since then, it has emerged into a, a, an intellectual colony that appears on the shores of Lake Chautauqua every summer for nine weeks. Each week has a theme and there are lecturers, there are authors, there is opera and symphony and theater. And there's there, Tamara Kaufman Wittes. And this year, for just a couple of days, there was Tamara Kaufman Wittes during the week on War and Peace wow. at the Chautauqua Institution lecturing on uh, U.S. policy in the Middle East and what may come next for that disordered region. So it was a sobering week just because of the topic. But, wow, what a fascinating community uh, to be steeped in for a few days, and it really was a lot of fun to be there. And you got to beat the heat in Washington. Oh, my God. It was like 70 and and cool at night with the windows open. Delicious. Lovely. Lovely. We should start a kind of like nerd summer camp. National Security Summer Camp? Mm-hmm. Maybe, mm-hmm. Ma- maybe our uh, editor and producer, Jen Patya Howell, can, can host it at, at Montpelier, Ooh. which is the... Uh, a historic mm. home of James Madison, where she uh, sure. works in her day job. We'll show you, Aspen. Everybody show yeah. up at Jen's house. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow. Salon Jen. Uh, Susan, what's your so object? My object lesson is uh, a lawfare post uh, that is a list that I put up yesterday, um, sort of uh, uh, amplifying a point that um, Amy Stefanovich, who's at the Access Now, um, had made about the fact that um, recent media coverage and panels on government hacking, which happens to be a topic I engage in, um, there was a, a mysterious uh, lack of women uh, in all of that coverage. And on was all a no ovary zone. But but exactly. Susan, isn't that because there are no women in tech policy? Exactly, exactly. Um, they're smaller lady brains. They aren't interested in these issues. Um, so as a sort of rejoinder to that. Um, I put up a very brief post just noting that um, there are a lot of women in tech policy, and here are a few names. Um, and I invited people to uh, to submit their suggestions of, of whenever you're organizing a panel um, or, or a journalist reporting on a subject, what women sort of in tech policy you should be thinking of and talking of, imagining it would be sort of a, you know, modest, you know, list form of what um, uh, women also know stuff and uh, foreign policy interrupted, FP interrupters um, has been doing uh, in those disciplines. Um, the past 24 hours, my phone has not ceased to send me notifications with uh, people tweeting and emailing me just lists upon lists upon lists of 
the names of accomplished women in tech policy. Binders, binders full, full of them? But I, could, nice. I could print them out and create uh, binders and binders of women. Um, so, uh, one, it's, uh, it's heartening and um, it's been a fun 24 hours reading about uh, all these incredible women who um, work in this field. Um, two, I'm not really sure what to do now um, because there are so many people uh, so I'm I'm hoping that some um, very motivated organization can sort of t take the baton from here. Or if a rational security listener wants to curate uh, the binders full of women list on Lawfare, uh, get in touch with Susan. There you go. Let her know. All right, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security and download the podcast from iTunes or Stitcher or other favorite podcatchers. And when you do, please, please, please remember to leave a rating uh, and reviews. We really appreciate getting those. Um, <clears throat> now that we're back from our vacation, uh, maybe we'll read some of those next week. So let At your friends our know. vacation? You mean your hey, you vacation. you guys could have gone someplace. I actually was in Maine as well. You were uh, up in, like, Lake Titicaca or whatever. <laughs> It's not really the only lake you can think of. <laughs> it's my favorite. <laughs> Speaking of food and toilet paper. <laughs> anyway, leave a review. Welcome back. <clears throat> it's almost the summer's almost over. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by the Fancy Shadow Brokers. You like that? That's good. It's That's like good. merging them together. Yeah. It's kind of like like... NSA and the Shadow Brokers. Well, it's kind of like the Fancy Bear Shadow Brokers. Fancy Bear is responsible for everything, you guys. Yep. Yeah. That's, that they is They run true. the world. They totally do. They're the new um, Who Illuminati. Who run the world? Fancy Bear. <laughs> Fancy Bear. <laughs> Fancy Bear <laughs> equals new Illuminati. <laughs> no, our music is performed, of course, by Sophia Yan, who is a fancy shadow broker in her own right. She's a she fancy sure bear. She's <laughs> oh, man. I'm not sure she'd like we that. We should get Tammy person. to say that with her voice right now. Yeah. All right. That, that's Sophia Yan. It's one fancy bear. Yes. Yes. Sophia, you make that your ringtone. <laughs> Do it. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Coffin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.